For those of you that don't know me, my name's Josh. I'm part of the leadership team here at RK. Um, and some of you may be wondering why um, they've asked me to speak again. And to be honest, you, you're not alone. Um, <coughs> so we were sat having tea last night and uh, sat with the girls and Esther and we were talking about what we were going to be doing today. And I said that I was speaking again. And uh, Alexis said to me, um, how come they've asked you to speak again? So I'm like, oh, cheers, Alexis. Um, and I said, well, they wanted the, uh, they, they, want, they asked the, um, the funniest speaker to, to speak today. So she said, uh, what? And he said, no. So I said, uh, yeah, that, so they asked the, the, they asked the cleverest and Georgia laughing said, uh, what? And he said, no as well. So I said, yeah, and that's why they asked the best looking. And, uh, and it's at that point that Esther turned around and said, and he said, no as well. Uh, so I said, um, yep, and that's when they asked me, because I said, um, I'd already said no three times, so I couldn't say no a fourth. Um, but we're going to be, um, we're going to be continuing our, um, our uh, sort of journey through James, and we've meet, reached a bit of a landmark um, in James. We've finished the first chapter, and it only took us six weeks, so I think that's pretty, uh, pretty good going. Um, and we're starting today in, uh, in chapter two, and I've got a feeling we're going to get through this second chapter much quicker because Carl, in his infinite wisdom, has decided to give me half of the chapter to go through today. So, uh, yeah, cheers, Carl. Uh, but let's have a look at it. So we're in James 2, and we're going from 1 to 17. And it says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not, is it not the rich who are, ex who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbours as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, the first thing I notice when reading this is that 
James is quite blunt right at the start. He doesn't tiptoe around the fact. He basically says, look, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in uh, the glorious Lord, if you call yourself a Christian, you must not show favoritism. Now, growing up, um, I have been on the receiving end, or the wrong end, if you like, of favoritism. Uh, I'm the middle child of three boys, and anybody else who's a middle child will know. It's a, it's a, hard, it's a hard part of the family to grow up in. Uh, you, you definitely receive the wrong end of favoritism. And I, it's, it's a real thing, I know it's a real thing, because it says so on Wikipedia, and anything that Wikipedia says must be true. So here's what Wikipedia says about middle child syndrome. So middle child syndrome is the feeling of exclusion by middle children. This effect occurs because the first child is more prone to receiving privileges and responsibilities by virtue of being the oldest, while the youngest in the family is more likely to receive indulgences. The second child, or middle child, no longer has their status as the baby and is left with no clear role in the family or a feeling of being left out. It's true, isn't it? I know, it's terrible. And just to prove it, I've got a little clip, if you're ready, I've got a little clip of what our standard Christmas was like. <laughs> Apparently there is a clip. That's not the clip. So, for the avoidance of doubt, by the way, I'm the one that got the socks, and Damo, who's my older brother, he's the one with the pink, pink top who got the car. Um, but, um, to be fair though, there was a time when, uh, when I was younger at, at school, and I, I was sort of on the receiving end of favouritism, and uh, we used to have this um, sort of... Uh, school competition where all the different schools got together and it was like an inter-school sports day and there was various events. Now the school that I went to used to hold, uh, have trials for, for each event and this particular year I decided to try out for football dribble and basically you had to get a football, you had to dribble it in and out of these cones and then turn around and come back again. And uh, I, I surprised myself, I was actually quite good at it. And it was just because I, I was nice and cautious. Everybody else just kept booting the ball and losing control. And I got to the final, so it was between me and this other lad. This was just to represent the school. So it was between me and this other lad. And we're gonna have one final race and whoever won that race would go through and represent the, the school. And um, the, the only problem was that the older kids in the school, the, the ones that were in the, the final year, they were the ones that were picking and looking after each event, and they were going to pick who, who won and who went through to represent the school. Uh, and the lad who was looking after our event happened to be the brother of the lad who I was uh, racing against. So anyway, we had this race, and to be fair, the lad who I was against was much quicker than me. But he lost control of the ball, and in true sort of turtle and hare um, style, I just kept control and nice and slowly went past him, and I won. Um, but he decided, that the, the lad who was judging, he decided that his brother would go through and represent the school, just because he was quicker than me. But thankfully, um, so I was just about to experience what it felt like to be on the receiving end of, um, of favouritism. Um, but thankfully, a teacher saw it and decided, no, I won the race fair and square, and I went through and represented the, the school. 
um, and I came fourth out of five, so maybe they, uh, maybe they chose wrong. Um, but there was a couple of, a couple of things that I noticed uh, that was about to happen when, uh, when I was sort of in that moment of feeling like favouritism was going against me. Firstly, it wasn't fair. It wouldn't have been fair if that other lad went through and represented the school when I clearly beat him. Uh, and it wouldn't, um, and also the other thing that I noticed is that if you're the person who's giving out favouritism, it's quite selfish actually, it was selfish for um, this lad to put his brother through because he was doing it for uh, his own personal reasons because he wanted pride in his brother um, or, he wanted, um, or he wanted brownie points from his parents perhaps. Um, so there, there were th they were the two things that I sort of noticed what happens when, uh, when you show favouritism. Now this might be a bit of a controversial statement but when we are travelling on the motorway going anywhere I will only ever stop at a service station if it's got a McDonald's. I won't stop at one if it's got a Burger King because to be fair McDonald's is better than Burger King. Um, so even if, even if the girls are bursting for the toilet uh, I'll drive straight past the a service station. It might be the best service station in the world. might have the best facilities, but I'll drive straight past because I prefer the nutritional goodness of McDonald's. Uh, so I'll just, I'll just keep going. Um, and I'm showing favouritism towards my favourite um, favorite fast food chain uh, over the service stations, even if the girls are about to, um, about to wet themselves, effectively. Um, but I think we would all probably say that we don't like favouritism and that there's part of all of us uh, that wouldn't want to admit that we show any type of partiality. But I think if we're honest, we probably all struggle with it to some degree. Uh, and although the warning in James, uh, this passage from James, can be applied to any sort of favouritism, um, James here seems to have concerns that the church are struggling with a particular type of favouritism. And he gives us an example uh, of a way that they might be doing this. And I think racial and financial favoritism are probably the two most common types of sort of personal uh, favoritism that people show. And here James concentrates on financial favoritism. Uh, and he describes two types of people. He says, look, if you've got two people who come into your church, the first one is a rich person. He's got nice clothes. He might smell nice, he's got nice jewellery on. Uh, and then on the other hand, you've got a poor person who comes in who might have tatty clothes, might smell a little bit. If you show favouritism towards um, the, the rich person, if you say, right, you come here, sit in the, sit in the best seats, uh, give them all your attention, give them the best coffee, uh, and to the poor person, you, you're almost embarrassed and say, you sit out of the way, we don't want to... Uh, we don't really want to acknowledge that you're here. Are you not guilty of showing favouritism? Now, both men are newcomers uh, to, to, to that particular church, but both of Trek completely different because of how they were dressed or because of how wealthy they appear. And I'm sure you'd all agree that that doesn't happen in, in RK, does it? It doesn't. <laughs> Um, but I think the, the favouritism that James is getting at reflects an attitude that we all have and this scenario is just one example of it uh, and I think the problem is, uh, is just as relevant today 
as it was in James's day. Now, this, it kind of ties in quite nicely with what I spoke about a few weeks ago uh, from uh, James 1 and 9. And I gave this example of the game of Monopoly of, is sort of a good way of explaining how the world, how society views um, money and views importance. And basically, if you're winning the game of Monopoly, uh, if you've got all the right properties, if you've got all the money, you're winning, you're at the top. Whereas on the other hand, if you haven't, if you lose and you haven't got those properties, you haven't got that money, you seem to be losing the game. But I think this, this uh, type of favoritism goes completely against the grain of the gospel. It says that someone who is worth more to the world is worth more to the church. And on the flip side, someone who is worth less to the world is worth less to the church. A favoritism like this ends up judging one person's soul as being more important purely based on uh, the views of the world and how the world perceives them. And James gives us an idea of what we're doing when we judge people like this. He says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And I think what James is trying to say here is that favoritism isn't just something to be frowned upon, it's actually evil. And I think James gives us an idea of how favoritism contradicts uh, what true faith looks like when he reminds us in, in verse 5, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? And as James indicated in, in chapter 1, because of uh, how the gospel, uh, sorry, because of the gospel, the poor can boast in the fact that uh, they've hit the jackpot and they have far more riches uh, to look forward to than can ever be gained in this, this world. Now, I don't think James is saying in any way that God loves the rich any less than, uh, or offers them the same reward any uh, less than he does for the poor. But I think James is just pointing out that God chooses to bless the very people that the world shuns, uh, that the world assumes are at the bottom of the pile. And I know Carl talks about this um, a lot, but I do think that the church should be uh, the most diverse bunch of people that there are. Um, and I think it should be one of the places where people aren't judged, but just accepted for who they are in God's eyes. Uh, and I love this quote. Uh, I'm not quite sure who it's by, but it says, The world loves things and uses people, but the church should love people and use things. Uh, and I don't know if you've uh, heard this phrase. Uh, it comes from an old hymn, but it says, The ground at the level of, sorry, the ground, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And I think this gives a perfect picture uh, of how we should treat people. We're all on a level playing field. In the eyes of Jesus, you know better, you know worse than anybody else. James then links favoritism with one of the commandments in the Old Testament in uh, Leviticus. And it says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and I don't think it's any coincidence that um, James uses this. And he calls it uh, the royal law. And I think he does this because Jesus talks about this law quite a lot and he holds it in high regard. 
Uh, and he uses it in particular in one of, uh, one of his stories about the Good Samaritan in Luke. So I'm just going to quickly run through that. And it's in, it's in Luke 25, and it says, On one occasion, sorry, Luke 10, 25, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in response to this, Jesus then went on to tell the story of the, the Good Samaritan, uh, where there was um, a, a man walking down a road. He got attacked by robbers and left on the side of the, the road to, to die, basically. And three men walked past him. The first two, a priest and a Levite, with people that you would expect to stop and help him, but they didn't. They just walked straight past. The third man, who you wouldn't expect to stop, it was basically that the, their two people were against each other, if you like, a little bit like an Everton fan and a Liverpool fan. They, uh, they clashed. Um, so you wouldn't expect him to stop, but he did. He stopped and he helped him. And he didn't just leave him there. He took him to safety uh, and he went the extra mile and he made sure he was okay. And then, um, then Jesus uh, went, finished by saying, which of these three do you think was the neighbour to the man who fell? into the hands of robbers. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And I think Jesus told this story in a way to explain or to demonstrate what it looks like to keep this commandment. And I wonder, though, if James thinks that some of his readers uh, at this time may have been using this commandment to love your neighbour as an excuse for favouritism. Uh, I think you can almost picture the response to some of them thinking, saying, but, but I am keeping that law when I, wel when I welcome this man in, this, the rich man, when I welcome him, him in and I spend time with him and I, I show him the best seat and I give him all the good things, I'm loving my neighbour. And they almost convince themselves that they're not doing anything wrong, that they are keeping this, this law. But when you look at it, when you look at the whole picture, they're only loving a certain proportion of the neighbours. They're not showing love to all of the neighbours. But you can't only keep part of the law and still be keeping the law. The law is a, is a whole made up of uh, individual uh, parts. And he explains this in verse 10 when he says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it, breaking all of it. Now, when I was uh, younger, uh, my, uh, my, one of my friends at the time, his birthday was on New Year's Eve. And on his 16th birthday, is, uh, is that your birthday? Uh, on his 16th birthday, his parents said that he could have, have a party, a bit of a house party at his house. So they went out for the evening, he had a few mates round, uh, and we had a bit of a party at his house. 
And uh, during the course of the evening, now his house was quite nice. His parents were uh, pretty minted. It was a big house full of expensive things. And during the course of the evening, I accidentally knocked over a vase uh, and broke it. Uh, I, just, I just broke the handle off, so I only broke it a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I knew it was expensive when I saw his face go very pale. Uh, but being the good, honest lad that I was, I uh, found some super glue. I stuck the handle back on and I repositioned the vase so you couldn't see the break. And uh, I think I got away with it because I've not heard anything to this day. But even though I only broke the handle off the vase, I didn't smash it into a million pieces, I still broke the vase. And I think this is what James is getting at when he tries to give uh, an example of this. He says, if you do not commit adultery, but, but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. I don't think he's saying that one thing is any worse than another. You know, I, I'm sure we'd all agree that if someone was to steal something, it's probably not as bad as someone murdering somebody. Um, But uh, I think he's ultimately trying to show us that uh, favoritism in this way goes against um, the law of not loving your neighbour. And to break this law is as much breaking the law as it is to, uh, to murder somebody. James then concludes and moves on to challenges with this verse, uh, in, sorry, this bit in verse 12, 17. And he says, uh, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then he finishes in uh, verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And I think he's hinting at the judgment that we'll all receive at the end of this life. And if we are people that show favoritism in this way, uh, which is effectively judging uh, people's worth, we will be judged accordingly. And if we don't show mercy, we won't receive it. Why? Because I think the lack of mercy is evidence that we haven't properly understood and accepted the gospel. Because I think the proof that we have truly understood and accepted the gospel um, is that it transforms your life and it might be a sort of it might be a slow process it might not all happen at once but it will start to change you and it challenges us um, don't don't just be someone uh, with empty words who says that you have faith but don't do anything to show it there's no point me saying that I'm, uh, I'm amazing lifeguard if I can't actually swim because the moment that somebody uh, comes into trouble, I'm not going to be able to help them. It's just empty words. So I think he's challenging us to, to put into action what the gospel does and how it changes our lives. And when we stop and truly reflect on what Jesus did for us, it should start to show in our actions. 
And I read something once that sort of struck a, a chord with me and really challenged me. Uh, and it, it basically said, how do you consider people in your day-to-day -day life? So, for example, if you um, go out for a meal to a restaurant, how do you consider the waiter or the waitress? Do you just see them as someone who is there just to uh, wait on you, to bring you food? Or do you see them as someone that God loves? Do you see them as somebody who's got a soul? And how would you treat them any differently if they were your family? And how would we treat other people differently if they were part of our family? And I just want to finish with the, the words from that hymn that I mentioned earlier about the ground being level at the foot of the cross. You may own earth's silver, have riches untold, but all of earth's wealth, my friend, won't save your soul. You may live in a mansion, all the world knows your name, but at the foot of the cross, my friend, everyone stands the same. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Anyone may come there, for there is no cost. Rich man or poor man, bonded or free, the ground was leveled that day at Calvary. So however you treat or judge other people or however you may treat yourself or think of yourself, uh, we should just remember that um, to Jesus there is no partiality. Uh, there is no preferential treatment. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you that you love us for who we are. You don't hold us uh, accountable for... Um, our wealth or how the world judges us, Lord, but you judge us uh, based on who we are. I thank you that we can all come to you, Lord, um, freely. You've paid that cost for us, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you help us as we go out into the week, Lord, just to view other people in the same way, Lord. Lord, view them through your eyes, that they are your children, that you created them. I ask this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.